G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. It's really good to be here with you for episode 101. We're kicking on. Well, absolutely. I know it's a uh, oh, it's a bit of a thing in cricket when someone makes the century. Quite often, they can go out soon after. So these are some some important episodes for us to push through. I reckon, Dad and. Well, I've got a great topic for today's episode. I'm very much looking forward to chatting about this with you. We've called today's episode Supporting Change with Chair Work. So I suppose just to give us a, a bit of a brief overview to start, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, chair work is a form of therapy or therapy strategy or a family of therapy strategies which involves people acknowledging different parts of themselves or different reactions in themselves. Like often we're going to have mixed feelings in a situation or we might be in two minds. Now, chair work is terrific at being able to help separate out these different kind of potentially conflicting or problematic reactions that we might have and finding a way of getting a little bit more balance in our emotional reactions, our ways of thinking. And what prompted it is that there was a training in Melbourne last week for three days run by Scott Kellogg. He's a clinical psychologist from New York and one of our colleagues here, Nahani, and I went to that training. Some have attended a training with Scott Kellogg before. But this wonderful training and demonstrations about how to use chair work in many different ways. And we'll be describing some of these different ways in this episode. And it's fascinating. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit more as the episode goes on today. But it's probably another one of those topics in psychology that might seem a little bit simplistic on the surface in terms of, you know, there's a bit of, a bit of role play involved in what we're going to be talking about today. And I remember hearing about this for the first time and thinking, oh, it's a little bit maybe infantile in some ways to, to you know, for example, do a, do a role play and, and act out a character sort of thing. But I think once we get into this, and, and I've certainly noticed this over the, the last little while looking into this as a topic, it can be quite profound once you really get into it and start to really break it down and recognise what it's trying to do. And, and I know that you've found it a super helpful therapy tool in therapy, in, in sessions for a whole range of reasons. Yes, and I've used it on and off over different years. And look, I'll mention later on, one of the most powerful experiences of my life was as a client using chair work with someone who is a masterful therapist at using that. I'll describe that later on. But I've certainly been using it a lot in the last couple of weeks following this training. And over the years, I have been using it on and off, but have this extra appreciation from this very sophisticated training with, with Scott Kellogg. And as you say, there could be something quite deep about it over and above how it looks like imagine if we're speaking to an empty chair and just say if we really imagine that we're speaking to a deceased relative someone say we loved or maybe had some conflicted emotions about but there were things that we hadn't expressed to them or hadn't had the opportunity or be able to express to them or maybe we had some mixed feelings about them that conflicted and we might not have chosen to say some things that might have seemed hurtful but we've got more to process about that relationship it could be so profound when someone is tapping into their deeper feelings about that someone they've been very close or attached to and their reactions to that person what could be if we're in two minds one example is do i continue smoking or quit smoking it can actually pick up deeper kind of things because when people are looking at continuing smoking, they might, you know, in that chair, looking at the reasons for that, they might appreciate there's this part of themselves that sees 
the cigarettes is almost like a comforting companion because they've combined the cigarettes with when they were, say, having a break or taking time out and, like, there was this comfort that went with it, almost like this magical property that went on to the cigarettes. And as someone's addressing, for example, a packet of cigarettes from that chair of wanting to continue uh, smoking, those feelings can come out in a more obvious way and then be contrasted with, the, say, reasons for not smoking. Or it could be, do I take this job or not take this job? Or it could be acting out maybe some conflict situation with someone where you want to express something to a person that you care about, but who you feel frustrated or angry with in certain ways. Chair work helps you tap in to these different reactions that we have that are sometimes conflicting, and it helps express ourselves more fully in relation to that. And when the person's in a particular chair maybe even telling a story about their past experience. It can be like they're in a trance. The person could be so immersed in that part of themselves or that role that it can take people to a deeper place and other things can come out beyond what we're usually more rationally aware of. Well, I think that's one of the fascinating things about this as a topic in terms of it seems to be able to tap into something that we can't just intellectualize or or find through pure rationality and the other thing is that it seems to acknowledge that well we're all quite complex in terms of it's it's you know very few situations that would just be black and white obvious in terms of what to do and and particularly you know situations that we come across in life that are a little bit more complex it can almost be so overwhelming at times to kind of go oh geez you know what do I do here there's you know a path leading me down this way and a path leading me down this way and I just don't really know which one's the best for me overall and chair work seems to be able to get to the bottom of some of that stuff better than maybe some other therapy tools. Yes and so just as general background we talked about this before the podcast but there's a lot of psychology that can almost lapse into the trap of trying to fix things. Because I think our Western mindset is often, oh, you try and fix things. A problem, well, how do you fix that? What can we do to make this better? What what can we do to uh, sort out the depression? What can we do to fix the anxiety? Now, I'm I'm slightly exaggerating with that, but I think there is that kind of notion. What can we do to immediately improve the situation? Now, unfortunately, a lot of the challenges that people have are going to be messy and difficult. A lot of life can be messy and difficult. People can be ambivalent about people that they're in close relationships with, parents, partners, close friends. There could be conflict that comes up. People aren't sure whether to express something or not. Someone might have a partner who has an addiction. They might be loving empathic towards the partner but also very frustrated and angry that the partner's not doing so much to improve that situation. How do you deal with that? Do you shut up? Do you just yell at them? Do you lose your temper every now and then and then shut up again? Or are there ways of looking to convey both loving supportive messages but also messages that hey look it's really important that something change here. And I don't think you're doing as much as you could. And that's really impacting on both of us in this way. And these are some of the consequences. What else might you do to give me more confidence that you're taking this seriously? That's not an easy conversation to have. But to unpack one's different feelings about it and then to act out the different sides, if you like, in a chair. You know, one chair is like the loving, empathic part. The other chair is like the frustrated, annoyed part. Often people come back with more of a balance than either just being judgmental 
towards their partner in that situation or just sort of passively feeling helpless and making excuses for them. That's just one example. We'll bring up many other examples where there's strong feelings involved, important kind of relationships, and it's complex, and it's messy, and there's no perfect solution. And yet, there are things that we can do that might improve the situation, that have maybe a little bit more balance to it, or can consider a number of interests. Well, before we get into some of the mechanics of chair work, we'll obviously outlay exactly what it is, but... It's interesting talking about some of the almost principles behind it in a way because you suggested one there in terms, I believe it's called multiplicity, but it's this idea that we, we actually have many different sides to us. Like it's almost a bit, a bit of a myth, you know, people say, oh, you know, be yourself. And it's almost like, well, gosh, you know, in a different situation, that might look a bit different. It's, this is a complicated situation. I don't necessarily know how I should act in this way. But, but like, for example, there can be times where we're almost holding multiple emotions inside at the same time. Like we can be angry about something. We can also be hurt about something as well or you know we can very much still love someone and and have love for someone but we can at times be disappointed in them and so it's almost this layered response where well it's like it's not necessarily black and white like of course we still for example love someone but there is this maybe layer of disappointment at the moment that sits on top and it strikes me that chair work is a really good way of distilling some of the parts to us. Yes and when you mentioned mixed feelings for some reason this Well, amusing thought came to my mind. I remember my grandmother and her older sister and her younger brother in their 90s. They got on brilliantly well. Every six months or so, they used to have this car trip together. But every now and then, you'd hear them bicker a little bit with each other, or otherwise you'd hear stories of how they'd bickered a little bit with each other. And my grandmother, at 92 or 93, still really felt that she was the little sister... (laughs) To the big sister who was maybe 96 at the time and the younger brother might have been the baby at 91 and you'd see how that kind of lapse into these little roles in certain ways. So it's funny, many of us could be in a situation, maybe we go back into a family situation, you notice you kind of can almost regress in certain ways or go back to how things felt a time in the past. Now that's normal for there to be those kind of complications in relationships. It could be hard sometimes to update ourselves or renew our understanding of how things are. So that just shows how complex relationships are. It's not just what's happening at the time or what roles we have, say, in our family or or in work relationships and things like that. There's also how we're affected by things that happen across time. And where chair work came into it is there are a couple of fields of therapy that acknowledge that people have different parts. In other words, they can have mixed feelings, be ambivalent, be in two minds, react in a mature way in some ways, but also in a sense almost regress to a different kind of you know, less mature stage with old reactions being triggered and coming up. Well, in psychodrama, for example, people could act out different well, roles in a family even. Other people could act out being your brother or sister or father or daughter or whatever it might be and then people might act out some stuck situations and see if there's a way of having a different overview and getting more unstuck but also you could act out parts of yourself for example there might be a sad helpless part a more dare I say healthy adult part and then an inner critic many of us could relate to an inner critic and Those of us who've experienced depression, and I experienced a severe depression I'll talk about later on, 
my inner critic was working overtime. And psychodrama involving chair work could help separate out part of you which is maybe feeling helpless from this inner critic from another more healthy adult part. And by moving between different chairs, you have an appreciation of these different reactions or responses and a different way of dealing with it. And Gestalt therapy developed that further as an individual therapy technique. And so Fritz Perls, a father of Gestalt therapy, again, trained as a Freudian psychoanalyst, just as Jakob Marino, who was the father of psychodrama, he was trained as a Freudian psychoanalyst. Each of these therapists developed this quite innovative kind of therapy where with Fritz Perls, he'd also have the person, for example, have a conversation with their tight stomach when they're nervous. What is your stomach saying at the moment about this situation? Or someone's hands might be tense. What might your hands be saying at the moment? That's another way of acknowledging different parts of ourselves or different reactions within us. So these very creative pioneers developed a technique which wasn't just a talking cure, which psychoanalysis was. It was very much experiential. And it was also relational and allowing for this multiplicity of parts within us and this belief that as we express ourselves more fully, that's healing in itself. For example, grief. If we express our grief more, do we just get stuck more and more in the pain? Well, if you're in an accepting, supportive situation and you have the time to unpack and express your feelings, it tends to be healing it tends to help you be more whole. And I think that's where it's interesting, this idea of parts work in gestalt therapy, psychodrama and chair work. The notion of the word healing, it comes from the same root as the word whole. And by looking at our different parts and looking at a different balance between them, more understanding about our different parts, maybe more connection between them, some more integration of them, it helps us be more whole and that's healing. And it's something that is slightly counterintuitive in some ways. I think partly because there is maybe this emphasis on, for example, being yourself in, in different situations, which, you know, we might get into that a little bit later. Like, what on earth does that mean as a, as a concept in itself? But I think the other thing to point out is that it's potentially a, a good thing as well that we do have these parts to us. Like, I remember one time having a, a conversation with some friends and, and we were just chatting and basically said something along the lines of, oh, isn't it a little bit funny how, how different we are in different situations? Like, oh, I might, you know, be how I am with you guys, but then I might go back to my school friends and, you know, I'm a slightly different version of myself. And then, you know, I can give my grandma a call and I'm a slightly different version then. And, and my friends at the time sort of said, oh, you know, like we're, we're just ourselves kind of all the time. And I was a bit sort of taken aback by that. Like I felt a bit embarrassed in some ways bringing it up, but... I actually sort of thought about it a bit afterwards and I think it's actually a good thing that we've almost got these different parts to ourselves. Like, for example, if I was, you know, chewing the fat with mates at the pub, it probably wouldn't be appropriate to be that sort of person that I am in that situation if I'm, you know, giving grandma a call and, and seeing how she's going. So it can almost give us more depth in some ways to have these parts. So it strikes me that chair work's not about, for example, getting rid of a, a part that we have judgment towards. 
It's more about maybe identifying what the different parts are and then we can have a bit of a play around with maybe the emphasis we put on different ones and, and maybe the priority that we give to our different parts and maybe even, you know, for example, what power different parts have over us. If we can bring more awareness to that, then it gives us a little bit more control, it feels. Yes, and look, there are a lot of things that you brought up there, but I want to come back to one of the things that you said earlier on about being yourself. One of the things that's often come to my mind, often expressed to clients, is it's the easiest thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world, in some ways, to be yourself. Like being yourself, well, you can't be anything else. So that's the, in a sense, it's it's easy, even with all our contradictions and mixed feelings. And if you like different parts, well, we are being ourselves, however we're being. But on the other hand, if being yourself means being authentic, being your true self, Well, that almost implies being very consistent, knowing exactly what you think about things and that being all very integrated. You're not conforming at all. You're not just being influenced by other people's interests or expectations because you're so much being yourself. Well, I think that's almost a fiction. And I think it's very helpful to develop that sense of being a mature, independent, healthy adult, if you like. We call that individuation, becoming more fully yourself. But it's a relative kind of thing. And we'll come back to this with chair work. In chair work, you look to invoke that more mature, healthy adult side of yourself by looking to the inner leader. But one of the things I like about chair work is it acknowledges that it's normal for us to have these different parts and contradictions and all the rest of it. And yet, it does look to invoke this inner leader, this more central part of ourselves, this more integrative, healthy adult side of ourselves, which is like a, a relative idea, but it's it's a notion of looking to be more fully ourselves and get at a deeper level at what we do want, what we do think, what's best for us and the people around us kind of thing. I like the way, in other words, that chair work allows for contradictions, but it does look to come back to some deeper more fundamental understanding of ourselves and, dare I say, a little bit more balanced, a little bit more integrated view. And I think it's something that, oh, it's, oh, it's obviously helpful for everyone to maybe have a bit of a sense of this, but look, it strikes me particularly for people, for example, who might recently be dealing with mental health issues, maybe even for the first time, because like in that situation, you know, it can be so overwhelming. If, for example, your worldviews change, you might have feelings that you've never felt before and... It's almost like, I can't remember, you know, who I am and I don't feel like myself anymore and I can't necessarily trust my natural judgment in situations. And so it does strike me as a a really powerful exercise, particularly for people in that situation. Yes, and, and what tends to happen, just say if people have been overcome by panic, just say in the last 12 months, they used to feel their life was going fairly steadily. They might be a young adult who's used to being pretty competent, but in different situations, they've developed these panic reactions. The person might think, oh, look, I've lost myself. Uh, I used to be a steady, stable person, but now I've become a bit of a nutter, or I'm slightly exaggerating, but the person might think, look, am I going crazy or something like that? Well, it's really more that one part of themselves has got out of balance, which is related to that evolutionary, yeah, protective fight-flight-freeze kind of mechanism. So in other words, these survival modes sometimes can be over-triggered. It might be a situation where we're concerned about failing or 
other people's disapproval or just thinking some situation was turning out to be threatening or very different from what we'd want and then we reacted or overreacted to it a certain way, then people can start to judge themselves negatively. Or if people go through a depression and then start to think, I'm weak, I'm helpless, I should be stronger, I should be handling this better, and then the person feels helpless about their depression or ashamed of their depression, then if you like that part of people's reactions, that part of themselves, that helpless part, can then in a sense, over-dominate their thinking and people can lose sight of their, well, their inner leader or that more healthy aspect of them. And most therapies are looking to bolster that, that healthy part of ourselves. But one thing I like about psychodrama and chair work, gestalt therapy, that side of things, is acknowledging that kind of vulnerability fairly fully, giving voice to it, allowing it to be there, not saying it shouldn't be there, but then looking at there are ways that we can manage it if we also tap into a little bit more our more usual inner authority that people might have lost sense of. But when they actually sit in a different chair representing that, that inner leader or that healthy adult part of themselves, then people often find themselves talking in a more wise, considered way and they hear themselves speak and they recognise they still have that resourcefulness there even though they would felt maybe they'd lost it. Well, you mentioned it there, but in terms of giving voice, because I believe that might even be one of the, the types of chair work. Like if we get into the mechanics of, oh, I suppose, how it works, and if we just outlay a little bit about chair work as a, an exercise, I believe there's a couple of different types of chair work. So we've sort of almost brushed over a couple of different ones. But if we get into each of them now, giving voice, what does it mean to give voice in a chair work session? Okay, now one thing might be if people are experiencing grief. And so people are experiencing all sorts of painful reactions to that lost loved one. Now, just say if we take cognitive behavioural therapy about 20 years ago where a lot of that's looking at people's depression, anxiety, looking for distorted thoughts. Well, experiencing grief is not necessarily a distorted thought or coming from that. There's this lost close attachment and the person can feel a yearning of the connection with the loved one who's no longer there. Well, it can be very healing for people to be able to express their grief more fully and maybe even express themselves to their deceased loved one. It can be expressing certain kind of regrets about things that weren't dealt with in a certain kind of way, but also very much expressing love. It could be expressing how someone misses that person who's no longer there. It can be expressing the way the person remembers fondly the different kind of you know, rituals they had or things that they did together. A whole lot of dealing with grief is being able to allow for the feeling and express the feeling. And funnily enough, there's overlap with that and other kinds of pain, to some extent even physical pain. Early on we talked with Mark Grant about dealing with physical pain and often if people allow themselves to have the physical pain in mind and actually experience it and process it, rather than it getting worse, it becomes lesser. That's maybe counterintuitive. A lot of people don't necessarily recognise that and by being afraid of their physical pain, they try and shy away from it. When it comes up, their reaction's worse. Going to it, acknowledging it, but then also recognising their ways of dealing with it, it, it can transform their experience of pain. Well, with emotional pain, there's something similar. 
But also maybe with emotional pain, there's something else. There's meaning in the pain of grief. That represents how close the person felt to the person that they lost. It represents that uh, that attachment that was there before. And if that's expressed fully as well, the love, the memories people have fondly of things that happen, then that can be a healing, a helpful thing. So the notion of going through the experiences, the emotions, it tends to lead people in the long run feeling stronger and more accepting within themselves rather than more overwhelmed. And so it's the opposite of avoidance and just trying to suppress feelings, giving voice to them. And is it the sort of thing, like I imagine this relates to all elements of chair work, but the difference, for example, speaking things out loud and speaking them in your head, because like it strikes me, for example, you know, you could do some chair work, it could go really well, and then, you know, you could think, oh, you know, I'll employ that tactic with myself going forward. But it seems to be that maybe when you say things out loud and almost, you know, you're listening to them in your ears as well, and, you know, I believe that engages a slightly different part of the brain and all this sort of stuff, it seems to give it something extra if you actually go to the effort of putting yourself in the situation where, you know, you're saying it out loud, there might be someone there listening to you, like a therapist in the room as well. Can you just speak to that a little bit about how maybe you benefited by saying things out loud versus in your head? Yes, and this is one thing that really comes across when you're a therapist. What you witness in many therapy sessions as you're listening to the person express themselves is what you notice is the person is hearing themselves speak. And as the person is expressing different kind of reactions that they have and reflecting on that, often there's also a degree of wisdom that comes through in the person's reflections, especially if they've been able to reflect on things over a period of time. It might be a number of sessions. They might have a little bit more of a handle on what's going on. But the person can hear themselves speak. And some of the things that they're saying are more affirming or reassuring or leading to new choices or opportunities or solutions that might be worth checking out in some way. And often what you're doing as a therapist is you're listening out for those kind of statements that the person's making uh, that have maybe more uh, hope or resourcefulness to them. You're selectively attending for some of those notions and just even by being attentive the person tends to say more of those things. So I think sometimes as a therapist, we're most influencing people with our ears, listen out for the resourcefulness. But just say how this can happen in chair work and people hear themselves speaking out loud. One example, it's a bit like giving voice, but just say if someone's going to give voice to an anxious part or a helpless, even self-harming part. Let's take the anxious part at first because I would have done this with a couple of people in the last week. The person, say, feeling stressed with burnout or they're feeling anxious with panic and you have the person in the chair, the distressed chair, saying how, say, with burnout they feel they have less energy, they're feeling more tired, they can't see how they're going to get on top of things, feeling overwhelmed, the sleep has been poor. And the person just acknowledges the different kind of reactions they have. Will they feel it in the body? They might feel a sinking in their shoulders. They might feel a tightness in their stomach, that kind of thing. And you can imagine the person can also do the same for panic. You know, feel tight in the gut and um, you know, the worried thoughts go through my mind. I can't see how I can deal with this. Um, I can feel in my um, throat, you know, tight, that kind of thing. So the person gets into that part that's in distress. But then alongside that, you have the person in their inner leader part 
So it's invoking this stronger, healthy adult, this observing part, and what do you notice? And in this inner leader role, the person might notice some kind of exaggerations, if you like. Like if the, the burnout side, the distress side, oh, look, maybe the person doesn't have to take on as much. Hey, maybe they can have more breaks. Maybe they're putting a certain kind of pressure on themselves in a certain way. When the person's standing aside from themselves in a particular role, like looking to sift a bit what they're hearing, they can hear, if you like, some of the distortions. Or if the person's feeling helpless and, oh, look, I might as well give up, I can't see any way of dealing with it, then the inner leader part sitting alongside in another chair might be thinking, look, wait a minute, that's a bit exaggerated. Actually, that's a bit ridiculous. One client said that in the last week when he heard these kind of statements, these helpless statements. Oh, that's a bit ridiculous. But by the same token, you don't want to get in the pattern of just rejecting oneself. Oh, I'm ridiculous. How stupid to think and have these negative depressive thoughts. The notion is, oh, well, that part of me is unconfident. That part of me can't see a solution to this. Well, in your inner leader part, addressing the person in that chair, can you see a way that this person might deal with it differently or this part might deal with it differently? And then if the person is in that inner leader role, they're reflecting on, well, do they just tell them off and say you're ridiculous? Do they say, oh, look, wait a minute, there are some other ways of dealing with this and maybe even, look, I'll help you. In that situation, I'll remind you those feelings do pass. It's not challenging all the time. There's other times when you're feeling okay, but I'll be here with you, helping get through that. Bad feelings pass, or something along those lines. And that's what a person enacted last week as well, dealing with panic. Oh, I can remind you that it'll be okay. Breathe. Now, in the panicky part, the person might forget to breathe and and might feel as though, Time's just going to stand still being overwhelmed. But from the chair alongside in the inner leader part, the person might say, yeah, I'll remind you. You'll be okay. It'll pass. Breathe. They're just feelings. So the thing that interests me with chair work is it seems to divide out those reactions a little bit more clearly. And that's part of the exercise, to look at each part being clear and succinct. Saying how you feel overwhelmed, say how you feel distressed, say how you feel helpless, and then from the other, say, inner leader chair, bring out these notions of resourcefulness. And often ending up, the person reflects on other things that they've handled and think, I am strong, I can deal with this. But also recognising they don't have to master the situation, they don't have to be fully in control, they don't have to eliminate the distress, just bear with it. So that's an example of giving voice to the vulnerable part while still remembering the resourcefulness that someone still has that can be lost when people are in the throes of panic or distress. And so we've been talking about a little bit, but that brings us to the next uh, type of chair work, which is internal dialogue. So, like, it strikes me as well. So describing chair work, like, maybe people are a little bit confused in terms of even how many chairs there are. Like, it might be worth explaining, like, a lot of the time it seems that there's more than one chair and it strikes me particularly with the internal dialogue, like this is the, the bit that we've been talking about, you know, your anxious self, you know, sit in this chair, describe everything that you feel, then we'll move over to this chair and let your inner leader come out and they can describe the situation from their perspective. Like what you were saying there before about how, you know, part of chair work is dividing out these parts. Like 
I remember thinking back to times when maybe I've been struggling a little bit, Dad, and I probably didn't realise this to this degree at the time, but just recognising some of my maybe slightly distorted thinking at the time. Like, I think when you do divide things out like that and you go, all right, let's let's see this through to the nth degree. Sit in this chair and be as anxious as, you know, you feel and, and really give voice to that. Like, it strikes me that in, in certain situations, it can almost become a bit of a caricature as well. Like, it relates a bit to what we were saying about hearing things out loud and saying things out loud. But for example, if we, you know, are going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm helpless, I'm worthless, all this sort of stuff. It's like, well, actually, you know, I, I've given a fair bit of power to that side of myself and almost going through the exercise of literally, you know, sitting in a chair, speaking as if you were only that person and, and had no other parts to yourself. Like it, it can seem a little bit ridiculous because it's, you know, it's a little bit over the top. And as people, we are, you know, a bit more complex than that. But I suppose this is where, you know, it maybe seems a little bit simplistic on the surface. But say having two chairs and actually having the exercise of getting up out of that chair and then going and sitting in another chair and then maybe embodying your inner leader, for example, like A, there's something slightly symbolic about, you know, getting out of that chair and moving into another chair and almost leaving that part of yourself behind you. The other thing is, you know, you've got to kind of take the time to go between the two chairs and that's where maybe something seems a little bit caricatured or over the top and it almost prepares you for getting in the Alita chair and going, hold on, you know, I don't think that's maybe the full story. Let's explore this side a little bit more. Yes, there is a lot about the physicality of getting up outside of a chair and sitting in another one. And there can be certainly several different parts. For example, I'll tell a story shortly of my own experience of dealing with an inner critic. And you can look at an inner critic and a helpless or depressed part of yourself and then a healthy adult part. There can be several parts of you having, if you like, an interaction with each other. But also, we can interact with another person that might be, for example, a grandparent who we loved but then also realised in certain ways that they are abusive to us or members of our family. So it might be deceased relative who you both have feelings of some love and attachment for, but mixed feelings because there's also this anger and hurt about how they might have been quite abusive. For example, a narcissistic grandparent, for example. Or it might be a parent who was somewhat abusive. And we can look at maybe a more kindly part of them and a more abusive aspect of them. We can separate out aspects of different people as well as ourselves. But I'll give an example of how we can have some kind of internal dialogue separating out these things. And this was the most powerful experience of my life in terms of a therapeutic experience. It was many years ago, about 35 years ago, I'd gone through a severe depression. There were lots of very dysfunctional things that were happening in the workplace, in the hospital I worked in, and I found that just added up over a period of time and I became not just stressed, but the distress that I was feeling over a period of months then ended up in a depression. And I felt like I was really failing. I was the senior psychologist at the hospital. I'd worked there for 10 years. I'd been a senior psychologist for five. And I felt that the fact that I was becoming depressed myself was a real failure. There was still more stigma in the 1980s, but I didn't realise what kind of stigma I had in myself. Well, this was actually about 1990 when, when this happened. Now... After three months, during which time I'd been hospitalised twice for a combined period of about six weeks, I was on the maximum dose of antidepressants. And um, then one day I was at home 
and I was just making very incremental progress with depression. I was able to do very little. I'd been off work for several months. I was off work for six months altogether. But a friend of mine sent me a letter and he said, look, I think you're a spiritual man. I understand that at the moment you're really struggling in different ways. I think it would really help you to see this particular therapist. His name's Max Clayton and he's a psychodrama therapist. I think he will help you. And I thought, well, they were so kind. The person wrote me that letter and I had no faith that the particular person, Max Clayton, would help me. But I thought, well, my friend was so kind in writing that letter, I would at least go and see because I wasn't really getting very far with the medication. The other things I was doing, I was getting some support that was helpful, but it was only incremental change. Well, anyway, I saw Max Clayton, who happened to have trained for six years with Jakob Marino, who was the founder of Psychodrama, who invented this chair technique. So I was very fortunate to see someone who's a master in that particular technique. But what he did in our second session is he got me to play out particularly two different parts of myself. I was stunned at the extent to which I had this inner critic. There's another part of me that was very helpless and he had me swap between the two chairs. In the in a critic chair, I actually felt that I was bashing myself with a branch, like a, like a big lump of wood kind of branch. And there was this helpless part of me thinking, look, I'm doing the best I can. Look, you know, I'm sort of I'm not getting anywhere, this kind of thing. Oh, look, I'm doing my best. This is so harsh. This is so terrible. And there's a part of me just thinking, that's just pathetic. You should be just doing so much more. This is really you know, weak. This, look at you. You're just pathetic. You know, this kind of thing. I can't remember the exact words. But the thing is, I felt that I was flailing a part of myself with a branch and the other part was feeling I was copping it in absolute pain and helplessness. I had no idea it was as literal as that. So this just came out to the fore in this chair situation, interacting between one part and the other. After a while, I was getting part of me was a little bit more detached from the situation. It's like hearing yourself speak. It's almost like observing yourself reacting in certain ways. As part of me, if you like, seeing all this going on and picking up that it was kind of like just really massively out of balance. At the end of that session, Max said to me, I think you have an imperfect solution. Now, they turned out to be magic words because when I got to the car park and I put the key in the lock of the car, now in those days you had to unlock it with a key, just as I put the key in the lock, a couple of things came to me. One is I realised I'd dropped the branch. It's almost like a couple of metres before I'd got to the car I just noticed I didn't have the branch in my hand anymore. And there was something about that that was profound. The other thing that struck me as I put the key in the lock is I have an imperfect solution. We're dealing with this inner critic. We're dealing with my perfectionism. And I realised, well, hey, an imperfect solution is a very elegant one. To a perfectionist, I'm really getting stuck into myself. If I can handle having an imperfect solution, a very bitsy, gradual, incremental recovery, half-assed recovery, if you like, slower than my clients, um, more difficult than most people, half-pathetic, but it's still some kind of solution, if I can accept that, that's pretty damn good. And after that, all the pressure was off. I was no longer beating myself with a branch because I'd seen the futility and 
dare I say, a degree of the internal injustice of that. It wasn't necessary. I was suffering enough. But the other side of things is that I felt that I had some kind of progress that I was making. And if it was really not that great progress, and I accepted that, that's an even more powerful or elegant solution. So this is me looking to deal with that issue of perfectionism, if you like, for the rest of my life. Now, those awarenesses or insights that came up lasted indefinitely. I had this knowledge, if you like, when I put the key in the car lock, I thought, I am going to go off antidepressants and I'm going to be off them for the rest of my life and I'll never get depressed again. That was 35 years ago. And I'll put it down to that hour of maybe half of which was the swapping of chairs and things like that. So I don't think I could have come to that kind of awareness or appreciation through conversation alone. It was something that separated out the parts in a more real way. It showed it with more clarity. I could see a little bit more what was going on. So, yeah, I I think back to that time of of when I dropped the branch and could celebrate imperfect solutions, that was a a game changer for me. Well, it strikes me that there's a real element with chair work of, say, deconstruction and reconstruction. Like, in that situation, you know, you would have been going in, you know, thinking, oh, this is me in this situation, not necessarily even probably recognising all the different parts to yourself, but it was almost like separating them out allowed you to kind of reassemble things in a more optimal way for yourself. But it's not until you really separate things out that you can do that. And I almost have a, a bit of a metaphor with this in terms of it's almost like, you know, we're all complex and, you know, we're all maybe a little bit of a, a puzzle in some ways, even to ourselves at times, I think, Dad. But it strikes me that with chair work, you can almost maybe take the puzzle pieces apart and understand how they fit together a little bit more. So it just allows you to, I suppose, recognise all the maybe different elements that are going into feeling in a certain way, which, you know, for, for many of us most of the time, like, you, you know, what are you feeling like now? And, you know, it's either good or, or bad. You know, we always think of things in these black and white terms. But it really does strike me that going through this exercise, like it can seem a little bit maybe simplistic at first, but it just gives us that ability to almost deconstruct things to the point of, well, even realising what emphasis we're placing on different parts of ourselves and that sort of thing. Yes, and that awareness has been picked up by other kinds of therapy like schema therapy. So schema therapy, for example, if someone is dealing with depression related to perfectionism, they would often be looking out for what might be like a vulnerable child part responding to a punitive parent part. And maybe an inner critic is an aspect of that. And then there's a healthy adult part that then looks to find more of a balance in that situation. So that terminology makes perfect sense, including in the example that I just gave. So looking out for the vulnerable child, the punitive parent, which might be replaying an experience with an actually abusive narcissistic parent, for example. The person's often heard they were not good enough and they felt they were just in the way and their interests weren't considered so much. They felt ignored. They felt that they were just a demand on the family. The parents just put their interests first rather than that of the child. When people experience a lot of emotional abuse in that context, they often internalise a punitive parent. Now, if the person can play out different parts and recognise, just say from chair work, that they have a punitive parent part of themselves, they don't have to change their genetics or their family of origin. The main thing they need to deal with is the punitive parent within themselves that's continued on, or what Freud might have called an overactive superego, 
that judgmental aspect getting out of hand. But I do like the way that with chair work that comes up in schema therapy and other forms of therapy, it's relating that developmental history or the person might have experienced abuse or trauma, like it might have been physical or sexual abuse, and recognising that there's a perpetrator there that the person can put in a chair and with a therapist alongside them, the therapist might even challenge that perpetrator or that abusive parent, speaking to them in no uncertain blunt terms about the harm that they've caused and then take that chair and throw it outside the, the door of the therapy room. That can be very healing for the person to see the, the actual punitive parent, if you like, or abusive parent ejected. But then often it's for the person to recognise that self-critical part of themselves that's internalised the parent and chair work can make that more visible. It can make it more real. And when we acknowledge that people have parts, all of us have parts, you don't have to be nuts to have some of that internalised reaction. It's a human kind of reaction when we form attachments. And we might form attachments to people who've been abusive to us. And that can then complicate our relationship with ourselves. Chair work can be very helpful at unpacking that. And so that leads us well into the, the next type of chair work. Jeez, I've only got a list of a few here, Dad, but it's such a fascinating topic that I think it's worth expanding on a little bit as we go through. But say, for example, we do have a, a maybe troubled relationship with a parent who you know, maybe was emotionally abusive in childhood and we want to have a conversation with that parent. I believe that chair work can help us almost practice for that conversation. Do you want to let us know a little bit about how that can work? Yes, well, that can be expressing hurt or frustration. If a person feels resentful toward a parent, then just being able to express how the person felt hurt by that person's behaviour. Now, sometimes, especially when the person's experienced very considerable emotional abuse and has constantly been invalidated it might be very hard for the person to find that in themselves to express that and that's where the therapist might sit alongside the client and then model that talking in a direct way to the parent about how harmful their behavior has been but sometimes what happens after that and again the client move, might move across to a different say in a leader position or otherwise tap into a healthy adult part of themselves in a different kind of way and recognise, oh, but my parent was raised in a situation where they were also maybe abused or invalidated by their parent or otherwise they were in just overwhelming circumstances and never really learned how to rise above it. Sometimes when you play out these situations, the person comes to have a different maybe understanding or appreciation not necessarily to, to forgive the parent certainly not to make any excuses for their abusive behavior but to see a context in which the parents if you like inattentiveness or invalidating behaviors where that might have come from and that puts a different kind of context to it and then sometimes with that kind of reflection you see the person just find more sense of authority in themselves, realise that they were mistreated, that there was a whole very complicated context around that. Maybe, again, their parents and grandparents were raised in war zones, had experienced sexual assaults or certainly a, a family with just very harmful, physically abusive relationships and alcoholism. When people can see the trail of where some things have come from, this separating out of parts can sometimes help people have more of a perspective and, and especially 
not take on unnecessary blame or judgment for themselves for what they've experienced. Well, it's just so interesting how much we can benefit from going through this exercise because it's it's not necessarily something that I imagine many of us would do outside of a, a therapy room just of our own volition. But to get to the, the last type of chair work, I believe, which is storytelling, how does that play out? Okay, now we've talked before about, say, post-traumatic stress and one of the principles of exposure. So if someone's had a car accident, if they tell the story over and over again, well, I'm driving through this intersection, the light's green, I'm driving along, I see a truck come from the right-hand side, it's not stopping, I hear a screech of brakes, now I feel the bang on the side of the car. Now, naturally, that's very distressing if the person is reliving an experience like that. But it's a standard cognitive behavioural technique for trauma for the person to do some kind of reliving of the experience. So we call it exposure therapy. The person talks and the first person present as though they're going through that again and evoke the feelings that come up. Now, if the person tells the same story on the third or fourth time, that tends to lead to a degree of what we call habituation. So in other words, it becomes less newsworthy, it becomes less triggering, it becomes a little bit more, you could almost say mundane. The feelings aren't so, if you like, unpredictable. The person gets more of a handle on it. Now, in chair work, then what you can do is different kind of variations. For example, a person can tell the story in the third person. So it might be, and then John was driving through the intersection and was going through a green light and this truck came from the right-hand side and can tell the story over again like that and John felt this and suddenly was thrown up in the air and banged his head on the roof ended up in hospital and tell this story. Now, you tell the same story the third or fourth time and the chances are some of the heat comes out of it. But it can be a person telling a story of any particular aspect of their experience, but if people can convey some of the emotions, some of the reactions and some of the context of what they experience, it puts it in a certain kind of perspective. So that overlaps with the common technique of exposure, but... Also, when the person, I should add with that, in chair work, the person might move to a different chair, which is the storytelling chair. And then at the end of them telling their story, you might, say, spin the chair around or put it in a different position or something like that. And you're leaving some of the feelings, if you like, with the chair. So when the person goes back to their other usual chair and they reflect on what they've experienced, that builds a nice degree of, if you like, a bit of distance or oversight or detachment from the original feelings. And a whole lot of therapy is helping people take distance from their reactions and process it in a different way. It's just that chair work does this in a more literal kind of way. Well, that was going to be my next point because that seems to be one of the, I suppose, threads between all these different types of chair work is that it allows us to go through an exercise to help us step back in a way. And like, oh, I wonder if it almost maybe helps us have permission as well to explore different sides of ourselves. whereas you know say we weren't in a therapy setting and you know the inner critic was maybe our most prominent part what could be really uncomfortable and you don't necessarily want to you know for, for lack of a better term sort of go to water in a situation but at the same time if you are in a therapy setting you can almost have this kind of little symbolic setup around the room where you move from one chair to the other and, and almost leave this sort of part of you behind and you've got the, the safety of having a therapist there like it just strikes me as being a 
obviously like a, a safer way to explore different parts of yourself where, you know, you can leave the room, you know, and then you're, you're whole again. It's just you. You don't necessarily carry the chairs around with you. But it just strikes me that that well, element of stepping back is a really big part of all of these exercises. But maybe it just gives us a little bit more permission within ourselves to maybe step back and explore things in a way that we wouldn't otherwise do if we weren't going through this exercise. Yes, that, that's a good way of putting it. And actually, why I describe that, one of the things that um, I'm reminded of is I was wondering to what extent might people use some kind of experiences or exercises like this themselves, thinking, look, probably people don't. It's probably just in a therapy setting. And I asked Scott Kellogg about that directly. I said, look, would there ever be applications for this outside of that situation? He said, look, he actually only uses it inside a therapy situation because often they're highly charged emotions that come up. And so I think it makes sense to highlight that what we're talking about now is particularly a therapy technique that will help being guided by a therapist but the principles that we're bringing up that would be relevant to anyone is recognizing that we all have parts it's natural to be sometimes in two minds or have mixed feelings and also there can be something helpful about expressing ourselves so one thing we know that people can do on their own which is like storytelling is autobiographical therapy and we could put that up in the podcast notes for this episode. So you know, we have a blog on autobiographical therapy where this fellow James Pennybaker did research that showed that if people sat down and spent a certain period of time, maybe writing a couple of times a week for 15 minutes or half an hour about something that happened that might have been distressing or difficult or they've got mixed feelings about, that actually could be helpful. That could be therapeutic. So maybe there's something a little bit more contained about autobiographical writing than looking to play out different parts oneself. It helps to have a therapist for that. But by the same token, there are times when we're going to play out a conversation in our head before we actually discuss something with our partner. Or if we're looking to ask for a raise from a boss, the person might play out a conversation in their mind or, dare I say, even practice with a friend. So that could be an application. Or otherwise, people talk to a headstone if they visit a deceased relative's grave. You know, It's normal for someone to do that. So there are ways that we can express ourselves to people who aren't there or there are ways that we can acknowledge different kind of mixed feelings within ourselves. But certainly the techniques we've talked about today would mainly be used in a therapy setting and we'll come back to them in some future podcasts when we talk about schema therapy, which draws very actively on chair work. Well, I wonder then if, like, obviously chair work itself, like, that probably is something that, that is maybe best done with a, a therapist. But at the same time, like, I wonder if there's maybe bits and pieces that you can take from it. For example, you know, I reckon going forward, having spoken to you about this on this podcast, like, there could be probably times where you go, do you know what? I wonder if my inner critic is, you know, a bit a bit overactive today, or going into this particular situation. You know, I'm going to re- really try and embody my, you know, inner leader as much as possible. So, like, it, it strikes me that there are potentially things in there for everyone really to to get something out of once you have a bit of an understanding of how chair work works and and what some of the elements are. But I wonder, for example, who does it work well for in a therapy setting? Because it, it probably wouldn't necessarily be absolutely everyone in a therapy room that, that you would use this exercise with. 
Okay, now one of the things that strikes me is it has a very broad application, probably broader than I would have appreciated because I've come to maybe agree with what Scott Kellogg recently said. If you can do therapy, you can probably do chair work. Like when someone fronts up for therapy, there's a degree of openness, if you like, to some level of empathic confrontation, some level of challenge, certainly looking for support, but certainly looking to allow oneself to be somewhat vulnerable or reflective in certain ways. And they're the main kind of attitudes that can help. Um, Even if someone can't move from the chair, or even if you're doing it over telehealth, for example, The person could, for example, hold one object in one hand representing one part and another object in the other hand representing another part. And I remember now there used to be a form of therapy called sand play therapy where there'd be different objects in a a little sand pit representing different parts of oneself. There are lots of ways that this can be used. I suppose it takes someone who's willing to do something which seems a little bit weird in the first place. And actually, I was joking earlier that I've actually started using this so much recently that I forget to tell some clients at first, oh, look, this might be a bit weird what I'm asking you to do. Just get up and ask people to do it. And then afterwards, I might ask people, how did that go? And they sometimes say, oh, it was pretty weird, but actually it was quite helpful and uh, all very helpful. And so uh, it's getting past that. Well, I would say it involves a degree of suspending disbelief. But I think a lot of helpful therapy or interventions involve a degree of suspending disbelief. In other words, we're ready to step away from our current perspective or position of looking at things or reactions. And so I think there's something about getting up out of one's chair and doing something slightly weird, which is helpful in itself. But look, I would also say there are times where someone is expressing something so fluently or readily and it's just making sense and it's flowing on and the person's hearing themselves talk and they're well coming across as that more if you like healthy adult kind of position that I think that just going along with what's happening at the time those sessions I'm less likely to look at chair work but if something comes up which is obviously disruptive in the person's reactions like a real conflict in their reactions or like a panicky part or a helpless part that seems really exaggerated, I think that's a particular opportunity to use it. So in one sense, I would say if someone's already making a whole lot of progress with what they're doing, then maybe not so necessary to bring something else into it. But if there's a degree of stuckness or a degree of inconsistency or real difficulty or the person is finding it difficult to see another way around something or they're going over something again and again and again, I think the novelty and disruptiveness of chair work can be a particularly helpful addition. And so I think that like, you almost gave a bit of a hint as to like, what seems to be you know, the crux of, of chair work and why we do it and where we can get benefit from it. In terms of there is this element of, say, stepping back from ourselves and our reactions and it strikes me that when we do step back and we can almost, you know, reconstruct things and you know, I mentioned this a little bit before, but it seems that we can just become such a, a more kind of integrated version of ourselves because we do have awareness of, you know, a few of the things maybe bubbling under the surface a little bit more than we did before. And and so as you were speaking there about someone who maybe is a little bit more, say, say integrated in some mm. of their thoughts, like like it seems that that's the goal of chair work is to be able to step back from things to the point of view of going, do you know what, like oh, I've maybe 
acted with a little bit too much prominence towards my, say, inner critic part. And once you sort of separate everything out, then you can kind of go, all right, do you know what? Like, actually, this is maybe a part of myself that I've I've maybe underemphasised a little bit or haven't recognised. Like, it, maybe going through that exercise just does allow us to maybe reassemble the puzzle in a way that is maybe a little bit more succinct and maybe a little bit more authentic to... You know, I'm going to break my own rule here, but, you know, who we are in terms of that be ourself idea. Yes, and one thing I like about this whole philosophy behind chair work, again, it's not having to be in control, not having to have any kind of full solution for things. It's allowing things sometimes to be a bit messy. And, like, another example of that is if we're in two minds about something, then we might think, do I take this job this new job offer or do I stay in the same job and there's some opportunities in the new job but there's some anxiety and concerns about losing contact with colleagues or something like that so the person might be a bit 50-50 they're not sure what they'll do but after separating out the two sides then the person might be more like 75-25 or 80-20 it's not a perfect kind of split I'm definitely going to take the new job or I definitely won't but it might be a little bit clearer. And so I think that that's an example of, yeah, looking at the different sides and the different parts and seeing it a little bit more clearly, even if it's not absolute. And I suppose like it just sort of came to me then that in some ways this is a very, I suppose, sophisticated way of you know getting out the, the yellow legal pad and doing a list of pros and cons. Like That's something that we can all, I think, relate to and it strikes me that that is, in some ways, similar in terms of, you know, it's a, it's a similar exercise that we're going through in terms of, you know, if I was to do it, you know, what what is the part of me that would benefit from this and what is the part of me that, that would struggle with making this decision? Yes, and look, actually, I might give one final example because I'd like to give a shout-out to Cameron, who was there at the workshop as well last week. Cameron is a clinical master's student at Swinburne University, and he was acting as a therapist for me with a particular kind of exercise we went through. And it was the idea of having some kind of dilemma or polarity. And so I looked at this particular challenge that I had. If there's a very frustrating situation that happened where something went on for five years, it was this legal process that was very frustrating. And I was thinking, look, should I follow this up and, in a sense, make a kind of complaint about how that went? Because this thing shouldn't have taken five years. And part of me is thinking, oh, look, could I be bothered going back to that? Look, it'll just make me feel bad to write it about this kind of thing so I've got to take myself back to those frustrating feelings but another part of me is thinking wait a minute this was very unjust this could be happening to other people as well it was a government organisation working in a very inefficient way people might not realise just how inefficient and I had this inner understanding of how it had really gone wrong so maybe I had a responsibility to others as well as that justice for myself but I'm thinking will I won't I now I'd been wondering about this for about six or seven months and Cameron, in this exercise, he had me play out this ambivalence. Part of me, oh, look, I don't know if I could be bothered doing this kind of thing. Another part of me thinking, no, I think it's really important that I do. You know, this was a wrongful situation. Other people be affected. I think I can say something about it. I went back and forth a bit. And after a while, I realised, look, I don't have to make it too taxing for myself if I write this. I can write about it in bits in my own time. I don't have to tell 100% of the story. I can 
talk about it or convey these ideas in my own way. I can do it in an article. I can write to this particular organisation myself. I could maybe speak to my local member about it. There's different things I could do. And suddenly all these other kind of choices come up. Now, this is coming back from the workshop in Melbourne. By the time I'd got to Footscray Station, which is only, what, about, say, 10 minutes away, and I'd been waiting on the train for 10 minutes beforehand, I'd written six pages, which is the landscape of what I would write if I did, if you like, document what my concerns were about what happened. In other words, it unlocked my potential and this activity and the motivation and it flowed and it wasn't too troublesome and all the rest of it. Now, I've still got follow-up to do on that, but I know I've got the basic stuff already written down I can come back to in my own way. So thank you very much, Cameron, that had been lingering for about six months and that helped mobilise me, but more it was the example was the example of what it's like to be ambivalent and stuck with something and get mobilised. And that was the very first exercise we did, that practice exercise in the chair work. So we didn't have to be, if you like, masters of the therapy universe to do that. It was just using the techniques itself unlocked this extra motivation and potential. Well, that's a fascinating process that you described just there. And well, there's something I want to talk about in, in terms of, say, different types of knowing, because I think it's really relevant here. And I've brought it up a couple of times on the podcast, Dad, because I'm just an absolute junkie for it at the moment. But basically, there's a Canadian professor by the name of John Viveki, who has a, uh, a lecture series on YouTube I think it's about you know 50 hour long lectures and I'm not through it all yet because you know you watch one and it just blows your mind and you go off on a journey of discovery for a week or so and you go all right now I'm ready for the next one but one of the things that he speaks about in this uh, lecture series is the different types of knowing so obviously you know there's there's propositional knowing in terms of, you know, I know that, you know, this is a podcast and I'm speaking into a microphone, like something that's either true or not true. But there's also other types of knowing as well. For example, there's perspectival knowing. So, you know, I know, for example, I'm Rowan and there's things that are authentic to me and based on my experiences, you know, if I was to, you know, walk down the street dressed in a clown suit trying to speak French that's probably not something that's the most authentic to me. And that comes from my perspectival knowing in terms of who I am and and even the roles that I take on and that sort of thing. Then there's procedural knowing, which is about how to do something. Like, for example, you know, I probably don't do it as well as I want to, Dad, but, you know, playing golf. You know, it's not as if you go, all right, this is the golf club and now if I swing my arms back in this direction and swing them through, like it's not as if it's that propositional knowing. It's just this almost inner sense of understanding how to do something like playing piano is another example it's not as if you're thinking about each of the elements of it as you go along you just sort of know how to play piano and your skills improve over time but then there's this aspect of participatory knowing which I think is just such a fascinating thing and I'm being a little bit simplistic with it today but it's almost the knowing that comes from participating in something you know like we can read you know plenty of stuff in books but it's almost a completely different experience you know going through the 
Well, experience going through the exercise or something like traveling, for example, is a, a real, I think, a good example of participatory knowing because, you know, you can know all there is to know about a country in terms of you've memorized its Wikipedia page and you might have spoken to a few people from there and you feel that you have, you know, a bit of a, an inner understanding about that country. And then you go there and there's just these, you know, little things that surprise you in a certain way or, you know, there's still an element of novelty to it even if you basically understand as, as much as you possibly can in an intellectual sense. And it strikes me that there's a element of chair work, which is part of this participatory knowing. Like, again, like I'm being a little bit simplistic with it because I, I think it's, it's quite a complicated thing in terms of, you know, religious rituals, I believe, try and get to the heart of participatory knowing in a way. And it just almost comes at us from this, you know, dare I say, supra-rational perspective in terms of it's not necessarily irrational. It might seem a little bit irrational on the surface, but actually going through an exercise and participating in, you know, whatever activity it is that we're doing gives us a completely different understanding. And like if we talk about, say, chair work, like, you know, we can sit here and, you know, we, we could even have a conversation about certain things and, you know, play with certain ideas to maybe, you know, expand each of our perspectives on something. But at the same time, actually going through the exercise of, you know, sitting in a chair, symbolically moving to a different chair, like that's going to give us a different almost knowledge than we could gain from, for example, a book. Yes, well, look, I'm actually really fascinated by that example. And as you were talking about it, say more images came into my mind about how profound it is because what you described about those different types of knowing, it really matches what happens with chair work. And I'd like to mention two examples that have referred to earlier on. Just say if the person has this panicky side of themselves and when they're looking to act out that part, they acknowledge the feelings in their body and the tightness in their stomach and the feeling helpless and the negative thoughts that they have and their breathing tends to be shallow and fast and their muscles tend to be tight. Now, that participatory knowing, when the person's in that, if you like, panic feeling chair, that panic part, they're actually responding quite spontaneously in acknowledging all these feelings in their body and the helpless emotions that go with it. That's participating. It's a kind of truth. It's a kind of knowing how they feel. But there's also a perspective, a perspectival knowing, like the inner leader sitting beside them can see how that's exaggerated, can see how it's like an overreaction to the actual situation. Then you move towards the procedural knowing, which is, okay, what can happen knowing how to do something? How can the inner leader help the panicky part? Oh, well, remind that part that it'll pass and breathe. Now, just let go. It'll pass. That's the procedural knowing. And then finally, there's the propositional knowing, which is panicky feelings always will pass. That I can muddle through this. I'm strong enough to get through this. And so it starts with that participatory knowing, just bringing that out to the fore, which might be more profound or impactful than the person was aware of. And that's where I'll also mention that I relate to that with my own experience. I mentioned the participatory knowing was, my gosh, I'm actually bashing myself with a branch. I didn't know I was belting the hell out of myself with a branch. That's pretty damn harsh. That's the perspectival knowing. There's part of me thinking, gee, this is over the top, doesn't maybe deserve that, 
maybe the maybe part of the problem this person's having is because they're being belted over the head with a branch. Then there's the procedural knowing. Hey, maybe if I let go of the branch, I might still be screwing stuff up. I might still be helpless, never get back to work ever again. Might be depressed forever. But at least you know maybe it's best off to let go of the branch. And the propositional knowing, we're all imperfect. Imperfect solutions can be good enough. Maybe if you try something different or just have a go at something, maybe that could be enough. But at very least, you're having a go. You can know you're having a go and you can decide that that's worth it. So I think what you described in those different types of knowing, it almost illustrates the different stages of chair work. And it's only by going through that participatory experience, I really feel the panic or the helplessness or the harsh judgment kind of thing. And that helps take perspective, including being in different chairs and looking to evoke the inner leader and then looking, well, what can I do differently? And that reinforces these underlying beliefs that bad feelings will pass. Terrible feelings are temporary. And, hey, maybe I do have ways of muddling through. Well, I think certainly, and you know, well, we might come back to that one in, in future episodes, Dad, because I think it's just a, oh, it's such a, an interesting aspect of, I suppose, psychology and philosophy. This idea of participatory knowing, in terms of, you know, if we wanted to ride a bike, no one's ever going to say, you know, speak to someone who knows how to ride a bike, or look up in a book how to ride a bike, or you know, watch on YouTube how to ride a bike. So, you know, you got to get on. You might need training wheels, which it strikes me a little bit that maybe chair work is almost like say the, the training wheels that we can have when riding a bike. In terms, of, you know, if if the metaphor in this situation of riding a bike is, you know, getting into some of these kind of maybe deep and dark emotions and distilling some of the parts of ourselves that are hard to acknowledge at times, well, doing that in this situation, well, it's doing it in the safety of, of say, having training wheels on. Yes, so like when you put it that way, I suppose participatory knowledge, another way of looking at that is the importance of also having experiential therapies. Experiential therapies which look to evoke emotional experience. Such a criticism of CBT in the early years because it would seem a little bit cognitive, a little bit intellectual and dry. So the person would say, yes, I understand that I might be overgeneralising or I might be looking at it in a distorted way, but I still feel like this. So early on, cognitive therapists might get a bit caught up in almost arguing to and fro about that rather than allowing the person to tap into their experience. And again, I suppose if we look at psychoanalytic therapy, if people are lying on a couch twice a week for 10 years or whatever, as often happened in Freud's era, well, there's something that might be happening, there's some processing that might be happening, but is that as direct or immediate or as powerful as very directly evoking these different kind of emotional reactions in a somewhat challenging, even almost provocative way that calls for a different novel kind of response. Maybe that's got an extra power that mightn't be happening if the therapist is sitting behind a a client, sometimes allowing five-minute silences that might deepen the person's self-reflection, but it might not have as strong an experiential, even somatic, affective, you know, the feeling component that sometimes can be very vivid and give more appreciation of what's going on for the person. Well, I think absolutely. And and that's where, you know, 
we don't have so many in our culture of these experiential practices in some way that don't at least, you know, at some level relate to the rationality of things. Like, you know, for example, maybe say in Africa where they dance around a fire or in other cultures where people say sing together and do all these things. Like, it seems that you're able to tap into something that maybe we don't get in our just super rational way of thinking about things. Yes, actually, I think one way we pick up on that is through movies because I think that films are representing psychodramas the whole time and the great literature, I think, represents the kind of challenge and messiness of life. You tend to get love, death, crisis and redemption. They're the themes that tend to come up in all great literature. Unfortunately, a whole lot of modern entertainment is going to be on Married at First Sight or reality TV that almost pumps up these artificial, larger-than-life kind of dramatic situations. It's kind of like a, a psychodrama in a way, but often a bit thin, often a little less redemption than maybe there might be, and the conflicts can seem more contrived. But I think that's one thing about great literature and I think that's one thing that helps our development just generally. And I think movies can be wonderful that way as well. But these archetypal stories, even fairy stories as well, what's the purpose of them? It's helping people deal with some of the challenges and ambiguity of life. Like Little Red Riding Hood. You might be a good little kid and you might face a hungry wolf. Doesn't mean it's your fault. There's really harsh things that can happen. And so that story came out of the Black Plague to help people deal with challenges and not just blame themselves for bad things that were happening. There could be something profound in literature, film and other ways of expressing these dramatic themes. Well, most certainly, you know, you'd know as well as anyone, Dad, don't get me started on some of these reality TV shows. I think they are just rubbish and maybe not good for society to have them as prominent as they are. But uh, I'm going to get too much into this, so, so we better move on. But I think that's a very good point, what you were saying there about, you know, even, say, movies and stories. Like, they can point to patterns that are broadly existing in all our lives. You know, you can read something from thousands of years ago and there's elements of truth in it for me even though you know, I, I certainly don't believe everything in a, a literal sense in terms of what's going on in the story. But at the same time, I want to just finish with something just because I've been thinking about this throughout this episode and, and throughout the week a little bit too. But you know, I've spoken about a bit, you know, this idea of say, be yourself. Like as we've said, it's almost the easiest and the hardest thing to do. But I was listening to a interview done with Ange Postacoglu, who's just about my favourite coach in any sport. And he's currently the, the manager of Celtic Football Club, uh, obviously a soccer club, football club. And he had this video on leadership. And, you know, I just think he's just almost the archetypal leader, particularly in a, a sporting sense. Like, he's as good as anyone. And he said something like, you know, the, the key to being a leader is to be yourself. And, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, that's... It's one of those things like on the surface seems so, you know, simplistic and, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to it. Like Ange Postacoglu is someone who just about everything he says has a degree of wisdom to it. So I suppose I thought about it a little bit more and, and it strikes me that, for example, being yourself, like maybe it does involve some aspect of these practices that we've been talking about in terms of being able to step back from yourself and maybe identify 
a more authentic way of going about things in terms of if we are able to separate out our different parts, we can say, well, hold on, you know, maybe this is the influence of my inner critic. And, you know, if I really think about myself over the period of time, you know, that's probably not the most prominent part of me. And, and I maybe don't want to acknowledge that as the most prominent part of me. And so maybe this idea of being yourself, it's not just, you know, acting whimsically and, you know, hoping that you're going to have some degree of consistency to it. Maybe it is more about having a way to, oh, I've heard this term before, you know, regression to the mean in terms of, you know, we can be going through a really tough time, but usually as time progresses, we're going to get some way back towards, you know, who we are in our, I suppose, most authentic sense. Like, I believe it comes up as something from statistics, but in a philosophical sense, I think it's it's really relevant too because, you know, we're going to have situations that affect who we are at times. Like, we're going to be really stressed at times and, you know, obviously that's okay and other times we're going to be, you know, quite euphoric in a situation and maybe that's going to bring out a particular side of us. But over the course of time, we're going to have this, I suppose, degree of consistency to us, which is, you know, I suppose really who we are, for lack of a better term. And maybe part of these practices uh, and, and some of the principles that we've been talking about today allow us to step back from things enough to go, do you know what, you know, is this the influence of, for example, my current environment? Or is this the influence of maybe a stressful situation that I've been going through? And if we can take that step back and maybe identify an element of ourself which might be hiding a little bit at the time or an element of ourself which is maybe a little bit more overactive and prominent than it has been in previous times, well, that will help us, I suppose, balance ourselves out, for lack of a better term, in terms of across the course of time, we can basically recognise, well, you know, this maybe isn't me at the moment and you know, that's fine, I won't sort of, you know, take judgment on that, but you can maybe assure yourself that, you know, in the future, you are likely to get back to somewhat more of, of you know, what, whatever quote-unquote your usual self is. Yes, I like that notion, that notion of allowing for the multiplicity, the range of voices, if you like. If we think of, say, a workplace, it's going to work better if more voices can speak up that will help for a balance. I suppose that's part of the idea of a democracy. But what you described, it also reminded me of something which we might make the distinction here with dissociative disorders. We've talked before about dissociative disorders and how a person, for example, with dissociative identity disorder might have different parts. It's interesting, we talk about different parts and so that overlaps with our theme today. We're saying that everybody has a degree of multiplicity but it's most obvious in people with dissociative disorders where they might even have amnesia between different parts. But when people are making progress with dissociative identity disorder, so they experience these different kind of identities within themselves, almost as though they're a different person, different ages, genders even, at different times. What often works best, and people often do this spontaneously, they develop a kind of committee or boardroom where all the parts are invited to attend. Even what might seem to be the more self-destructive parts. Everybody's welcome to attend, but maybe a more harsh, self-destructive part might be told, look, you've got to sit in the corner for a while and not speak up until you know, we've gone through this a bit more, something like that. There are ways of containing it, but things generally go best when allowing for some acknowledgement and expression of the different parts. 
So what we're talking about here is almost a similar kind of process. And I think what you're saying is true. What happens when people with dissociative identity disorder do that is they tend to gravitate towards a more stable position. There's more of that strengthening, I think, of the inner leader because it's not just switching between one part and the other. There's more co-consciousness, if you like, developing between the different voices or viewpoints. And again, in a workplace, that can help it be healthy. A family, it helps if everyone can have their say about their preferences. And so I think like you're suggesting, it could be also a sporting team or coaching staff. If they can all have some kind of input, it'll tend to work better, even if you acknowledge that some people might have more decision-making responsibility, hopefully like an inner leader. But in terms of this Yes, hopefully that comes across from this podcast. If we acknowledge that we've all got different parts and there's a benefit to allowing for a fuller expression, often even of some of the more problematic or distressed parts, that can end up with more balance. It can knock off some of the rough edges, lead to more stability. I never actually saw it, but it really reminds me of that movie Inside Out, as you, I believe it's called, as you were describing that there in terms of, you know, all the different emotions were, I believe, living in the head of, you know, the whether whether it's a fella or whoever it is. Uh, but it was almost like each of the different emotions had their influence at different times and there seemed to be a bit of an interplay with that. So, yeah, just as you were describing that with there with the committee, like that strikes me as a really good example of maybe a pop culture reference where we kind of explore these ideas a little bit in terms of, you know, what are the different influences within us? And, you know, at times it seems that, you know, some can pop their head up and be a bit more prominent and other times they might be a little bit more out of the way. Yes, a wonderful movie, Inside Out, and certainly our child psychologists often recommend that to children and teenagers. It's it's a really helpful thing. And look, one final thing I mentioned too is a lot of what we're talking about today is also developing different ways of taking perspective and developing resources. You can't just get that from a pill. Now, there's a lot to be said for medication in certain situations when people are severely depressed or certain kinds of distress. It can take the edge off that. People also, for example, with ADHD might really benefit from medication for a little bit more consistency in their cognitive functioning. There's often a place for medication, but it can be really overdone because medication cannot generate resources like we're talking about these processes, how they can generate resources. So that's where I think often when people have more problematic personality reactions, if people have internal ethical problems, if they're dealing with things like shame and guilt, that's where it's especially important sometimes to see that there is a psychotherapy component to people dealing with their difficulties, not just looking at medication for dealing with depression when that's based partly on these personality conflicts or shame and guilt. Well, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. You know, just looking down at the time, this is one of our longer podcasts. And in some ways, you know, I suppose that's because it's, it's a great topic, but I think it's also one that will springboard us into the next few episodes because, you know, there's so much to unpack with this in terms of, you know, as we said at the start, like it can seem a little bit, say, simple or, look, dare I say, maybe even a bit silly or, you know, to use your terminology, weird. Like we don't have a lot of examples where we go through an exercise like this, but, you know, I know that you can vouch for this just in terms of how much people can get out of going through something like this. 
Yes, certainly in the client's chair, even with a recent practice, it can be profound, but certainly I would say the most profound transformative experience of my life, that was 35 years ago, it was one hour, and long-term resolution of depression associated with perfectionism. So yeah, that's just a personal experience, and uh, I will be forever grateful of Max Clayton and his teacher, Jakob Marino, for developing psychodrama and the chair work techniques and so we'll put all the resources for today's episode up on the website at psychspiels.com.au if you are listening on the internet feel free to give us a subscribe on either spotify or apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast really because we'd love to have you around as we i suppose launch into our next little phase of, of psych spiels after the 100th episode dad i'm looking forward to getting back into it look forward to it rowan